Hey guys, this is Radhika. Today, I have the honor of speaking with Mr. Richard Rothstein via telephone. Mr. Rothstein is the author of The Color of Law, a forgotten history of how our government segregated America. The Color of Law has become a part of the Loyola curriculum for the Professional Identity Formation course. Mr. Rothstein has spoken about his book here at Loyola University of Chicago School of Law multiple times and was kind enough to call in to talk to us here at the Podvocate. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this is the Podvocate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to the Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for being with us today. I know you've already told me to call you Richard, so I will, but that's hard for me. Um, I'll try my best. Um, I'm guessing several of our listeners will have already read The Color of Law and are familiar with you and your work, uh, but there are several listeners out there, like my family, for instance, who probably aren't as familiar. So can you just take a second to introduce, introduce yourself and your background and tell us a little bit about how you came to write this book? Well, my name is Richard Rothstein. Um, I spent the many years as an education policy writer. I was the education columnist at the New York Times for a while. I wrote education policy papers for the Economic Policy Institute. So that was my field. I did not know much about housing. But I came to the conclusion that the biggest problem we faced in American education today was school segregation that resulted in an achievement gap between black and white students because so many low-income African-American children come to school with such serious social and economic disadvantages that they can't possibly achieve at the same level as children who come to school well-rested and well-nourished and um, in stable homes and in economically secure families. I thought that racial segregation was a problem that we had to address. And then I realized that the schools are segregated in this country because the neighborhoods in which they're located are segregated. In fact, schools are more segregated today than any time in the last 50 years in this country, and the reason is neighborhood segregation. Mm -hmm. So as an education policy issue, I began to look into neighborhood segregation, and I began to realize that the myth that I had adopted and that all of us adopt, that residential segregation was something we call de facto something that's just happened by accident, had no basis in reality. The reality is that every metropolitan area in this country is segregated by racially explicit federal, state, and local policy. Uh, it's not de facto. That's an other myth. Uh, racial segregation as the product of unconstitutional government policy is as much a civil rights violation as the segregations we addressed in the 20th century, whether of schools or colleges or lunch counters or buses. That's how the book originated with education, but it obviously went beyond that. And the more I did the research, the more I recognized that our entire view of residential segregation was mistaken. Absolutely. So um, you mentioned de facto segregation. That's kind of segregation that just happens based on um, the desire of the people. Uh, in the book, you do a really good job, a thorough job of differentiating 
de facto segregation from de jure segregation, meaning government-sanctioned segregation. So unfortunately, a lot of people live under the fallacy, including students in this school who I know have read your book, believe that de jure segregation ended with Brown versus Board of Education. So what would you say to those people? Well, I would say that I don't know what you mean by ended. Uh, When we create unconstitutional residential segregation with federal, state, and local policies designed to ensure that African-Americans and whites uh, don't live with each other, uh, near each other, uh, that establishes permanent patterns that are very different from the kind of segregation that schools had that Brown versus Board of Education uh, prohibited legal segregation. When Brown versus Board of Education prohibited legal segregation in uh, schools, the next generation of children could attend schools that were not racially designated. Now, of course, the decision wasn't enforced very well, but in principle, when you abolish legal segregation in schools, the next generation can go to integrated schools. But if we abolish legal segregation in neighborhoods, the next thing would, next day things would look much different, or the next generation it would look much different because these patterns are set. Correct. So I am not claiming, and the book doesn't claim, that the reason we have segregation today is because of ongoing unconstitutional policies. Certainly we are doing things that perpetuate segregation, that have the effect of perpetuating segregation, but rather that the policies that the unconstitutional policies that government practiced at the federal, state, and local level in the 20th century created such powerful patterns that simply saying we're no longer going to practice those policies doesn't integrate neighborhoods the way we say if we're no longer going to practice school segregation can uh, end that kind of segregation. So since you've written the book, have you noticed or heard of any legal processes being undertaken to directly address the issues that you highlight? Well, I know you're talking to me from a law school. Correct. And lawyers tend to think that the way to solve problems is through litigation. We have a very narrow lens that we view things through sometimes. Right. But that's not my view. Mm -hmm. I I don't believe that this problem can be addressed primarily by litigation. There, There are some things we can do. But mostly, it requires policy, public policy, that is as powerful to redress segregation as it was to create segregation. And that policy won't happen until there's a new civil rights movement that is as aggressive and militant in demanding redress of segregation residentially as it was in demanding redress of segregation and the ending of segregation in schools and colleges and lunch counters and buses and swimming pools in the 1960s. We know what to do to redress segregation. There's no absence of policy ideas. There are lots of think tanks, housing policy experts. Everybody knows what to do about this in the policy world, in the housing world. What's absent is a political demand that those policies be followed. That's the purpose of my book. The purpose of my book is not to stimulate litigation purpose of my book is to awaken the public to the extent I can that the patterns of segregation that we have in this country are unconstitutional, they're civil rights violations, and we need to remedy them. And until people understand that, there won't be the political demand that policymakers undertake the necessary policies. 
Yeah, so I hear what you're saying loud and clear. Um, and I feel that many, many in my generation who are the millennials would feel the same way, and particularly the generation that's coming after us, Generation Z, I feel like are even more attuned and more willing and more um, ready to have the kind of civil rights movement that you're talking about. Have you noticed any type of generational divide? Do you speak to your contemporaries, the ones who may have lived through the previous civil rights movement? Um, where, Where have you noticed generationally at least, the conversation is going? No, I have not noticed the generational divide, and I don't have as much uh, confidence in young people, as you can imagine, (laughs) as you do. Uh, Understandably so. I see a lot of awareness in young people of um, the history of segregation and and, uh, the failure of uh, this country to deal with the legacies of slavery and, and Jim Crow. But I don't see the kind of organization to demand change mm-hmm. that's required. Uh, young people spend a lot of time exchanging social media reinforcement about this. That's but true. that doesn't create the pressure for change. You know, in, the, in my generation, people were engaged in marches, demonstrations, civil disobedience. People lost their lives in that struggle. Absolutely. That's different from exchanging social media messages uh, about the history of segregation. So knowing the history is important. but the younger generation uh, does not have the experience or the habitual inclination to engage in direct action to uh, redress segregation. And in fact, as I um, go around the country and speak about it, I find as much of an appetite to begin to think about how to do this among middle-aged people and older people like me as I do among young people. That actually uh, makes me feel more hopeful because, and I think this is the bias of youth, we often feel that the older generations don't care about the issue or aren't willing to tackle it head on. So um, as a young person, I'm saying that I feel the energy exists within the youth, and you're saying that you've you've seen that the energy exists amongst the older generations also. So I'm hoping uh, that means we're all on the same page and we can actually do something about it, right? Well, as I said, it takes action. It doesn't just take um, exchanging uh, messages. Sure. I don't see that yet. I'm hopeful it will develop. And if it does develop, it will have to be led by young people. But I don't see young people yet doing it. I don't see young people taking action in suburban communities to Mm -hmm. challenge zoning ordinances that perpetuate racial segregation. Uh, I don't see activism to... um, demand that banks in gentrifying communities stop underwriting gentrification that displaces large numbers of African-Americans and Hispanic residents into less healthy neighborhoods even than the ones we're gentrifying. So we need that kind of um, organization, not simply um, attitude change. Yeah, I have to totally agree with you. I absolutely do not see young people or a lot of these um, big groups, even groups like Black Lives Matter, who are geared completely towards changing the condition, the diaspora that exists amongst African Americans and minority communities in the United States. Um, but I feel like there is an example, and that's around climate change. You, you Have you observed the youth movement around climate change, and is that something similar that we need to address segregation in this country? Well, uh, yeah, I guess so. Um, 
you know, we have a lot of work to do on a lot of fronts. Yeah, that's um, true. The Black Lives Matter uh, activism around uh, mass incarceration and the uh, police murders of, of young black men is important. Mm -hmm. uh, there is activism around um, climate change. We need much more of both of those, but we don't see anything similar uh, with respect to uh, residential segregation. And mm -hmm. I'll say, let me say this. I think that, um, you know, obviously climate change is the overwhelming problem of our time. And uh, I don't know whether we will be able to address it. But in terms of social problems in this country, residential segregation is the single most important social problem that we face. Yes. It underlies, as I said before, the achievement gap. It underlies health disparities between African-Americans and whites. So African-Americans have shorter life expectancies and greater rates of cardiovascular disease so because they live in less healthy neighborhoods. Yeah. It underlies the mass incarceration. Uh, it would not exist to the extent that it does if we weren't hurting the most disadvantaged young African-American men into single neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. uh, and it also underlies the very dangerous and uh, frightening, uh, to me, uh, political polarization in this country today uh, that largely tracks racial lines. How can we ever preserve this democracy if so many African-Americans and whites live so far from each other? Absolutely that we have no ability to understand each other's life experiences or to empathize with each other. So I think uh, no problem, uh, social problem in this country uh, uh, is more important than dealing with residential segregation. And we don't have the kind of uh, the intensity of awareness yet on that issue that uh, is mobilizing people to take action, young or old. But I'm hopeful it will happen. I share your optimism and hope also, and I think that while social media and these types of things are obviously a big issue in our society, I think that it also provides young people with the means to learn what they need to learn and hopefully with the motivation to actually get out there and do something about it. So I'm, I share your hope and I really, I'm glad that you're out here talking about it. I'm very grateful that you agreed to speak to us. We can get to many more audiences this way and hopefully somewhere a leader will emerge on the topic. Leader and followers. Yeah, leader and followers, exactly, exactly. Um, I don't want to state the obvious, but you are a white man and you are speaking on issues of race and racism. So how do you feel that your own racial background has impacted the discussions you're attempting to have, if, they've, if that's impacted it at all? Well, let me say this. I, I think that racial segregation is an American problem. It's not a black problem. Every American who is a citizen of this country has an obligation under our Constitution to take action to insist that the Constitution be followed and that civil rights violations be remedied. So um, certainly African Americans bear the biggest brunt of harm from these policies, but we're all harmed. As I uh, said a few minutes ago, the polarization in this country harms everybody. Uh, we're not going to solve any of our problems that affect either whites or blacks, so long as we have the kind of racial segregation that we have and, and the inability of blacks and whites to come together, largely because they live so far apart. So I don't, I don't think of this as a black problem. Mm -hmm. You know, I often get um, invited to speak uh, at Black History Month uh, 
conferences. And I tell the people who are inviting me that the, this is not a black history issue. It's a white history issue. It's an American history yeah, issue. Absolutely. And uh, so I don't feel in any way illegitimate in talking about this history. This is uh, all of our problems. We've all got to solve it together. I guess my point in bringing that up was almost the opposite, that because you're a white man, people might hold your opinion to a greater stock than they would um, minority communities who have been speaking about the issue for decades and decades. And I personally, as a woman of color, feel almost um, emboldened when I know I have the support and allyship of white men so i'm wondering if you feel you've had maybe more of an impact because of your background you know i think that may be true but i think that the reason my book has had such a big impact is not mainly because i'm white mm -hmm. maybe part of it i don't deny that but it's because it's um written for a popular audience you know all the, yeah. the, the subtitle of my book as you may know uh, is a forgotten history of how our government segregated America. It wasn't unknown. It wasn't hidden. It's been forgotten. True. And one of the reasons it's been forgotten is because the many, many accounts of it that have been written have been written primarily for academic and policy audiences, not for a general audience. That's true. Uh, I didn't uh, really un uncover a lot of this myself. I read other books, other articles written by uh, uh, academic experts who, who documented the way in which the federal, state, and local governments have segregated the country. But nobody has written before, so far as I know, a popular account that makes this history accessible to a general audience. Mm -hmm. And I wish more of the, the scholars who've been writing about this for years had done that. But you're, I don't deny that what you're saying, that some of the, the legitimacy of the book is attributable to the fact that I am uh, white, but mm -hmm. it's also because it's specifically not an academic book. It's but it's very serious. It's very very factually based. It's got you know too many pages of source notes, <laughs> um, and I, I'll say this: I'm, I'm I'm quite proud of the fact that um, the book has been out now for two and a half years. I'm not a professional historian, as I indicated before. I'm an education policy writer, a journalist. But not a single fact recounted in this book has been challenged by any professional historian. Wow. In 2019, that is something to be held, proud of. Has held up. So I think um, that has something to do with it as well. And I, I hope that uh, other people will begin to write for the audience that they say they know they influence uh, rather than in an academic style. You mentioned that it's a forgotten history, which is in the subtitle. And it was easy almost for certain portions of the American population to ignore that these issues existed, at least for, you know, maybe the 80s and 90s. People were able to ignore it in some ways, um, not the people it was directly affecting, but others. But now in 2019, we're seeing, I think, a lot of the adverse results of these policies in the long term, namely the homelessness crisis in California. So the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority stated that homelessness is a direct byproduct of racism in America. And I was wondering if you have, um, since you've published the book or during your research, had a chance to look at the actual homelessness crisis in California and um, made any connections between 
your research and your book and what's going on now? I would say this. Uh, in this country, we have a great deal of difficulty dealing with social and economic problems of any kind, even if uh, they're not racial. And one of the reasons we have such difficulty dealing with it is the political polarization that is racial, yeah. that I described earlier. So it is not just the uh, uh, African-Americans and Hispanics who have a housing crisis in this country today. It is um, white millennials. Here in California, the housing crisis is not only a crisis of low-income African-American and Hispanic families. It's a crisis of tech workers mm -hmm. who can't afford housing. Uh, it's a crisis of uh, young people who can't afford to live in the communities where they grew up, the suburban communities where they grew up. The reality is that the, the public sector is the only way to deal with the housing crisis that we have in this country today. The private sector is incapable of building housing for moderate income families, much less low income families. And the reason that we have such a starved public sector in this country is because of our racial polarization. Mm -hmm. Other industrialized countries who also have big social and economic problems don't have them nearly to the extent that we do because they don't have the kind of racially polarized politics that we have. Certainly, the homelessness crisis is disproportionately minority, but not exclusively so. But it extends beyond low-income families. I'm going to switch gears a little bit, not completely, but I saw that you sat with another one of my heroes, Ta-Nehisi Coates, for a long discussion in 2017 at the Sidwell Friends School in Washington, D.C., uh, I also had recently the opportunity to go see Mr. Coates as well on a recent book tour, and he brought up a topic that you mentioned in your book briefly at the very end, reparations. What place do you think the topic of reparations has in a modern discussion about housing segregation specifically? I think it's um, not helpful. Okay. Uh, I think it's helpful for two reasons. One is that um, most people think of reparations as a single monetary payment to the current generation. Now, that's not what it means if you look at technically what the word implies. The word implies all sorts of remedies. You repair the damage that we've done, not just with a single monetary payment. Mm -hmm. um, housing policies, of the, the construction, as I mentioned, referred to before, by public of agencies of mixed income housing, not just for poor people, is a form of reparations, but that's not how most people think of it. That's true. And a single monetary payment to the current generation is not going to take care of this problem. We need a wide range of policies, some of which are cost money, uh, but many of which don't cost money. They, cost, they, they require political will. For example, one of the most important things we need to do to solve the housing crisis that you just described, mm -hmm. uh, and that is important for redressing segregation, is the abolition of zoning ordinances in suburbs that prohibit the construction of anything but single-family homes on large lot sizes. Yeah. Is that reparations? Well, yes, it, technically it is, mm -hmm. but most people don't think of that as reparations. If we were to make a single monetary payment to the current generation and call it reparations, it wouldn't take care of the problem. It would be too insignificant. 
even if it were done uh, to, to take care of the problem. But the danger is that if we did that, people would conclude that we've now repaired solved all the world's the problems of slavery and Jim Crow. Yeah. And we will not have. So I think I, I understand um, what my friend Tanahasi wants to do with this. Mm -hmm. And um, I think he's trying to call attention to the fact that we have a legacy of slavery and Jim Crow that we have never addressed and we need to address. And so I understand his, his uh, use of the term reparations. I don't object to it, but I do think that it has the possibility of misleading people and to think that we can solve this problem uh, with a monetary payment to the, the current generation. And uh, I know that's not what Tanahasi means, but uh, I think that's the, what the general public understands. And as I said a few minutes ago, I think we need to be talking uh, to the general public in ways that they can understand the seriousness of this problem and the obligation to do something about it. Yeah. So that's always my touchstone is, is what does the average person understand when we say something? And even if we say something that's accurate, if we, it's not going to be understood the way we mean it, then we need to think of a different way of saying it. So I use the term remedies Remedies. rather than mm -hmm. reparations. And remedies includes monetary payment uh, that, or monetary uh, expenditures. We should, for example, the government, as I suggested in the book, the government as a way of redressing its uh, unconstitutional policies to create segregation, should be buying up homes at market rates in exclusive white suburbs and reselling them at big discounts to African Americans. That's a, that would be a costly uh, program. Uh, and we should do it. That's a remedy that's required. It's a narrow uh, constitutional remedy for a very specific constitutional violation. These suburbs were created on a racial basis. But we should also be doing things that don't cost a thing, as, for example, uh, the repeal of exclusionary zoning ordinances. All of these things are necessary. I call them all remedies. Uh, and, uh, you know, if somebody wants to call them reparations, I, I can't challenge that. But that's not what most people mean when they hear the term reparations, and that's what worries me. Yeah, I think that's an important lesson for everyone, but especially lawyers. We do a really bad job of saying things that are digestible to the general public, even if our intentions are there. So I think that's a good reminder, and I appreciate you saying that. I'm not suggesting that we dumb down what we say. Correct. Rep uh, remedies is a perfectly legitimate term. It's not a dumbed-down term. But it's a term that the public understands to mean a broad range of policies to redress segregation, not simply a monetary payment. Yeah, I would agree. And in your book, you talk specifically about Levittown. And um, I'm not sure if I'm going to have the numbers right because I don't have them in front of me. But um, $8,000, I believe, is what they were originally or 75000 is what they were originally going for. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't matter the exact numbers because right. it's very hard to make an inflation adjustment for housing over the 70 years. But it's roughly equivalent to $100,000 in today's money is what those homes sold for. And it's not just Levittown. It's suburbs of Chicago mm -hmm. and San Francisco and Los Angeles and Atlanta and everywhere in the country. These were homes that were suburbs, single-family home suburbs that were subsidized by the federal government that were sold for about $100,000 in today's money to uh, working-class, white working-class families exclusively, many war veterans, and they're now worth many times that amount. Uh, they're now unaffordable 
to working class, uh, low and middle class families of any race, mm -hmm. not just African Americans. Uh, but uh, African Americans were explicitly excluded from the opportunity to purchase them. The white families who bought those homes gained over the next few generations equity, wealth, from the appreciation and the value of those homes from $100,000 to, like I say, around $500,000. They used that wealth to send their children to college. They used it to take care of medical emergencies. And they used it to bequeath wealth to their own children and grandchildren who then had down payments for their own homes. Mm -hmm. uh, that needs a remedy. That's why uh, the wealth gap, which is an ongoing cause of uh, social inequality in this country, is really, the, uh, in large part, attributable to a civil rights violation. Yes. That requires remediation. So in my mind, all of those things are reparations, but I think you're right. It's a very simple solution. People have a, a naturally very adverse reaction to the word reparations because of the concept of a one-time payment. But in my mind, I'm thinking of all these remedies, and I agree with you. By just substituting that word, I think we might be able to advance the conversation more than uh, people are willing to let it go right now. So, yeah, I totally hear what you're saying. One thing, though, so there are actions we can take about the zoning ordinances, as you mentioned. And you may not have an answer to this. I don't know that anyone does. A big issue in our society is this NIMBY problem. I'm sure you've heard this. Not in my backyard. So people who like to see themselves as progressive and want to come up with solutions are fine with it as long as it's not in their backyard. They don't want these housing projects in their backyard. How do you make other people care enough to get past those NIMBY issues. Have you seen any solution to that at all? Well, sure. As I said before, we need an activist civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. You know, in the 1960s, people said, not in my restaurant, yeah. not on my bus, not in my swimming pool. <laughs> not my they got over mountain. it because there was a militant movement that was raising the temperature of this issue. And until we have that kind of a movement around the issue of residential segregation, uh, the, we won't make the kind of progress we need to make. Well, I became familiar with your book when Loyola sent me a copy and told me to read it before I started my 1L year of law school. And I can comfortably say now that the book changed my life. I say that without any sense of irony at all. It absolutely changed my life and provided a very solid foundation for the rest of my legal education and in large part has really shaped the perspective from which I'll approach the law for the rest of my life. How do you feel knowing that your book has become a part of the curriculum in at least this law school, and I'm not sure, probably many other um, educational capacities across the country? And what long-term impact do you hope that it has, which you've already answered in some ways? Well, I'm gratified, obviously. Mm -hmm. I didn't expect it to have this kind of impact. Uh, you know, when I first wrote this book, I had a great deal of difficulty publishing it because uh, nobody wanted to take it. Nobody wanted to publish it. They told me we were in a post-racial society. That's shocking and, uh, to me. Yeah. Nobody would be interested in this kind of stuff. So um, I'm very gratified that uh, people are recognizing now that we're not in a post-racial society and uh, that one of the consequences of that is not only my book but the work of Brian Stevenson or... Michelle Alexander and mm -hmm. Otanahasi Coates mm -hmm. is getting wide attention. 
uh, so it's it's gratifying to have done this, uh, and uh, I'm hoping it will uh, continue to have an impact. Let me say I want to uh, say something that, um, in reference to what you just said about how it impacted you, yeah. um, African Americans, as much as whites, have held this notion of de facto segregation. Sure. And uh, it's uh, I often get told by people, oh well, well black people knew this. Well, black people didn't know it. Black people knew they were segregated. Yeah. White people knew they were segregated as well. Mm-hmm. But um, on the whole, African Americans were as, um, have had has forgotten this history uh, and the role that government played in violating the Constitution by creating residential segregation. They were as unaware of this and have forgotten it to the same extent that whites did. So we all need to um, learn it and understand the consequence of learning it is that is we have an obligation as american citizens to take action to redress it absolutely it's a cliche but knowledge is power and with this book you've given all of us the knowledge that we need to really make some big changes and i'm hoping that we can follow your example and heed your advice and and take the information in this book and and change the world Well, I hope so. (laughs) I appreciate you. Thank you so much for giving us your time. It means a lot. Thank you very much. Good luck to you. Thank you, Mr. Otsim. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, an event you'd like us to address, or just something you're passionate about, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Our producer is Jim Allruts. Our senior editor is Radhika Sutherland. Our associate editors are Haley Burridge and Jake Kupferman. And our editor-in-chief is Matt Doran. Special thanks to Dean Michael Kaufman providing the resources and support to make this show possible. And thanks to our predecessor, Dialogue DeNovo, for launching a podcast on our campus. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podcast.